Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Homer writes in his epic poem, The Iliad, Andromache, my soul's far better part, why with untimely sorrows heaves thy heart? No hostile hand can antedate my doom, till fate condemns me to the silent tomb. Fixed is the term to all the race of earth, and such the hard condition of our birth. No force can then resist, no flight can save, all sink alike, the fearful and the brave. No more, but hasten to thy tasks at home. There, guide the spindle and direct the loom. Me, glory summons to the martial scene. The field of combat is the sphere for men. Where heroes war, the foremost place I claim, the first in danger as the first in fame. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What does it mean to be a man? How do boys become men? How might books aid boys in that journey from boys to men? In episode 20 of the Wittenberg Hour, we discussed the first half of Ellie Mummy's list of 10 books every boy should read before he turns 21. Joining us today to discuss the second half of her list is Miss Ellie Mummy. Ellie, welcome back. Thank you, thank you. I am potentially even more excited to discuss this second half of this list, so I'm very glad to be here. Last episode, we reveled in all that makes boys, boys. This week, we focus more specifically on what it means to be a man and the process of becoming a man. Just as a recap, we ended last episode talking about the three questions that you posed for readers in your article in the 96th Thesis. Those questions really came to the fore when we were discussing Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. I'm guessing that those three questions will really be evident and play a crucial part in the books that we discussed today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the books that we discussed today also kind of explore different common facets of those questions. Those questions are very broad and those questions are very heavy and are are going to seem unreachable right away at the beginning because as like a 13 or 14 year old boy who wants to be a man and is hoping to be a man, asking what do I want is way too big of a question. And so the novels that we're going to be discussing today are dealing with those questions, but they're also dealing with some of the most common things that men want and what other people want of them and asking that constant question of what is the right thing for me to do. And so they do a great job of kind of pre-assuming and pre-supplying some of those questions to young men and then illustrating for them what a good answer and what a bad answer might be. So those three questions, just in case our listeners need to go back and listen to episode 20 after they listen to episode 21, those questions are, what do I want? What do other people want of me? And what is the right thing to do? And so we had spent a little bit of time kind of fleshing that out, and you had brought up the fact that that last question, what is the right thing to do, is is really pivotal in terms of that transition from boy to man. I would argue certainly using these lists that it really is a boy becoming a man when he becomes focused upon this question. When this question becomes something that eats away at him and is what he's constantly considering and mulling over and stressing and worrying about what is the right thing to do, that is when he has went from a boy's state of mind, which is less concerned with that and less aware of that question, to the mind of a man 
who is constantly wrestling with that and what to do with the answer to that and the struggles that come with answering that question. So you begin the second half of the list with the Iliad. Why the Iliad? The Iliad is a book that, to me, is almost so obvious for this list that I had trouble even explaining initially why it needed to be on this list. Because to me, it was just, well, duh, it has to be on the list. (laughs) Right. But the Iliad, first and foremost, any boy is going to love. The Iliad is just everything that a guy wants in a story. It, it is a massive battle. It is a whole bunch of battle strategy. And it's also very detailed. So you're actually going to get to know how many battalions and how many soldiers and exactly how they fought and all of these things that can get old to women sometimes. Um, but men, they just eat it up. There's just so many details of war and of strategic maneuvers. My brothers both are not that fond of this time period in history. As far as writings go, they don't like reading this, although they like learning about it, but they deeply love the Iliad. The Iliad is something they absolutely love. And my one of my brothers is now in the Marine Corps. He has always clung to the books that showcase men as warriors and that further than that also walk you through battle strategies and the whole valor of war. And the Iliad is just, I mean, literally bleeding that. That is what the Iliad is about, is war and how men should act in war and really kind of asking questions about how you deal with war on a personal level, on a... um patriarchal level on a um the level of being a member of a family being a father being a brother being a friend it really is not only dealing with the actuality of war but also with the relationships that develop in war and that deal with tension through war so it's really i mean an epic but it also is covering a lot of these topics that men dream about and this idea of being a valiant warrior and a brave warrior, while I think also realizing for them some of the temptations and the sadnesses of actually being in a war. You know, you're not just glorifying the idea of war, you're also seeing some of the negative impacts and the heartbreak that happens when you fight a war. That little section that I read from the Iliad in our opening of episode 21 is from a scene where Hector and Andromache, you know, Andromache is is begging Hector, don't go to war. You're you're going to die. And uh and Hector says essentially no, we both need to fulfill our vocations. I'm fighting so that you can go home and guide the spindle and direct the loom, you know, so that you can care for the for the home. I'm fighting to protect you, to protect home, to protect our son. And battle is is where men should be. You know, men should be protecting and providing. And it's just, it's such a poignant scene about distinction between men and women and just the the profundity of vocation and living within your vocation. You know, Hector isn't, as you said, he's not glorifying war but he's he's dealing with the reality that war whether it be literally a war or battles that that we face every day the war this side of of heaven you know the church militant that that this is where where men are men yeah absolutely i think <laughs> Hector is one of the greatest reasons to read this book. Hector as a character 
is phenomenal as a role model for men. I, I mean, is almost un, unsurpassable. He and this, the passage that you read are such a great example of this. And this idea that Hector knows what he wants. He knows what his wife wants of him. And that is to run away, protect their family and leave and get away from this bad conversation and bad situation, I should say. But he knows that the right thing to do is to fight and to actually defend. And he very gently and kindly encourages his wife to remember that and puts her in her place and puts him in his own right place and does the hard thing, even if it's not what he wants. And I think that is just a phenomenal example of the lessons that you learn in this book. And you're also going to get that contrasted with men who are not doing the right thing to do or who are doing the right thing to do for the wrong reasons. So you can also look at Achilles. Achilles loves battle. Like he loves the honor of it. He loves the ability to be in it. It's less so him going, I'm fighting because it is the right thing to do. He's going, I'm fighting because I love to fight and I love battle and I love the glory and I love all of that. And that reflects in the struggles of Achilles life. And there are consequences for that desire and passion and motivation. And there are also consequences for Hector's actions. And they're well contrasted to each other, as well as taking someone like Paris, who is also fighting, but is fighting for an illegitimate reason. Um, he's fighting for the love of a woman he doesn't deserve. And so you're getting all of these men who are doing the same thing on a textbook level. They are all fighting in a war against each other, but they all have different motivations and different reasons for being a part of that battle. You even get um, Odysseus, who is coming because he has a pact with Menelaus to come and fight. Um, and so he doesn't even have kind of a, a bone to pick in this argument. He is coming out of loyalty to a friend and a fellow. And so you have all of these different motivations for why these men end up where they're at. And that comes into play with how the battle plays out. It is more complicated than just, we threw people in a valley and they went at each other until half of them were dead. And that I think is really, really brilliant about this book is that it explores all of the different reasons for being in the battle and all of the different kind of emotions and virtues or shortcomings that these people have, whether it's, I mean, you get a lot of lust, anger, and betrayal in this story. Um, that's kind of where the war comes from. But then you have a lot of honor, um, valor, and just brilliant battle strategy coming up to kind of match the consequences of those sinful actions at the beginning and throughout. There's always some kind of a hero or some kind of a virtuous warrior who rises up to meet the shortcomings of themselves or someone else in the battle and in the story, which I think is just a great thing to read and think about. And my other thing with <laughs> the Iliad specifically, and we'll talk about this more later with some of the other books on this list, but young men can learn a lot from reading the Iliad and paying attention to the heroes of that story that women enjoy. Because most men that I know really, really like Achilles. Um, and it's very befuddling to them that women tend to prefer Hector. And that I think is a good thing for men to dwell upon and to figure out why are some of these heroes who are all valiant in battle, revered by the non-warrior community, basically, more so than the others? What is it about their character and what is it about their motivation that makes them more beloved by women and children than these warriors who might even be better fighters and more and have a better, you know, a bigger head count of people that they've killed and enemies that they've 
destroyed. So I think that also is a really good thing for boys to consider and try and work out on their own about this novel specifically. One last thing that I want to throw out there about the Iliad is just how well Homer places the reader in the action. For those who haven't read the Iliad, it is largely based on dialogue in a surprising fashion, perhaps. You know, it's it's one conversation after another. It's constant back and forth. And, and so you, as you read, you really find yourself in in the action and my scholars read the Iliad and so I perhaps jokingly but perhaps seriously say things like as you are following the dialogue and and wiping the blood spatter off your forehead you know as you read because you're really in the midst of the action you think about the draw of, for example, in video games, the, the first-person shooter, you know, that you are in the action, you are doing the, the shooting. You know, to a certain extent, Homer provides that for readers by surrounding the reader with the action and the dialogue. You can hear the conversations as they play out. Absolutely. I think, again, this really satisfies every every need that a guy has for those sorts of things. And video games are a great illustration of how men love that idea of the warrior and being right in the mix and being the one to save everything and complete the mission and all of that. And you're right. He really puts you, Homer puts you right in the middle of it. And you you can just kind of blur the lines between yourself and any of the lead characters and say, you know, and kind of go along with them as if you are Hector or you are Achilles or you are Patrocles. And you're able to kind of like go into the novel in a very unique way because you are so immer immersed in this war so fully. And I think, um, all of that additional content, you know, a lot of the Iliad has all of the, these are how many weapons they had. This is how the ships work. Here's how this works. And while that might seem unnecessary at the beginning, it's doing just that. It's bringing you in. You can picture it. You know how it's all working. It's like you're on the battlefield in the the tent where they're making all the strategic decisions because you know every every resource that they have, you know all of it. You actually can do the whole thing. You can mentally be there and i think that's brilliant and certainly certainly wonderful as far as homer's approach to telling so whereas the iliad gives us the whole picture of the trojan war and yet gives us those details that bring it in in that in the iliad we see both the be this, but don't be this. This is the consequence for, you know, I always like to use the example of Achilles. When you throw a fit, people die, right? <laughs> Throwing a fit is, is so serious that can it, it can result in the death of those around you. I think very fondly of the Iliad for its portrayal of people throwing fits or being dramatic. And it, and it, Reminds you that no matter how bad your situation is, that doesn't give you the right to complain about it. And I would actually draw that to my other absolute favorite thing to read when I feel inclined to complain about my situation in life is anything in Exodus. Because the children of Israel do the same thing. And it is deeply entertaining to kind of read along and say, I mean, God is providing food for them. He's literally rescuing them from slavery. And all they're doing is whining about it. And it's relatable and I think we should read it and and be amused by it but also be a little condemned by it and go okay I would so be complaining at the same time and this is not 
the right, you, you don't have a right to complain in that situation, in Achilles situation, you do not get to throw a fit. And I think it's, it's a great lesson to learn. And the Iliad does it. Exodus, I think, is genuinely one of the best places to find that lesson, uh, which is a big life lesson to learn. But Achilles is, I mean, prime example of having some of the greatest like might of anyone. He's such a good warrior. But then he does things like that. And he does not escape the consequences of his own actions, in spite of the fact that he barely thinks through what the consequences of his actions might be, they still catch up to him. You know, he's not really concerned with what his actions are going to do as far as kickback. And he really lives to learn that that is not the case, that what he does has effects. And like you said, throwing tam temper tantrums does kill people and that people can die from that. And I think it's a, it's a good lesson to learn, especially now when we don't have, the average young man is not going to get to fight actual battles. And so they don't get to learn that on as large of a scale as Achilles learns it in this novel. And so if you can read and kind of go along with the actual consequences of that, it helps you when it seems a little less serious in your everyday life because you're throwing a fit and it's just annoying or aggravating people. No, there are big consequences. You are just blessed if your ill actions do not have as wide of an or as permanent as an uh, effect as Achilles did. You are and blessed for that. Not Achilles just wasn't good enough at throwing a good fit sort of thing. So I think that is also a really good lesson through the Iliad. So the next book on your list follows right directly in that same vein Virgil's Aeneid. Yes. So I went back and forth about these two specifically because I wondered whether or not I should have both on the list or not. And then, of course, there's always the Odyssey, which is the other one. But I knew I didn't want to put three, all three on. Um, and if you stay tuned for <laughs> somewhere pretty far down the line, um, you will find the Odyssey showing up on another list similar to this. But the Aeneid was really important for me to put on this list. And I kept coming back to it because the Aeneid teaches a lesson that we learn less, I think, in current society. And it teaches a lesson that people are not willing to hear. There is a huge group of readers who think that the Aeneid is simply a ripoff of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And while it stylistically draws a lot from the Iliad and the Odyssey, thinking that it only copies and imitates those really, really misses the most fundamental point of the Aeneid, which is Roman culture. And Romans specifically relationship to their country itself. Um, their sense of duty and their sense of vocation is so integral to their culture. And this book, I mean, masterfully represents that. And that is not how we see this reflected in either of the Greek ones. And that's simply because it was not as important to Greeks and it wasn't viewed the way in Greek culture that it is in Roman culture. Your duty and your vocation, your secular vocations and secular duties and piety, I guess secular piety is a huge thing in this book, is so important. It is the central part of this novel. And that is why I think young men need to read it is that they don't also get, they don't get to just ask the questions of honor and valor and loyalty. They need to also ask the questions and contemplate the effects of duty, vocation and piety. And that is what this book does masterfully. One would think with these books that you were putting them on the list because they kind of satiate that need for adventure and war and conquering and might and battle and all of these things that you see 
bubbling out of boys in if you watch them play. Somehow it doesn't matter. Somehow a battle comes into their play regardless of, of what they're playing. And yet you have introduced for us so much depth in the Iliad and the Aeneid that there's so much more to these works than battle. Battle might be the thing that draws the boys in and gets them going in their reading and gets them hooked, but it's all these other lessons, all these other fundamental things about being a man that really are the backbone the the skeleton of of why these books are important absolutely and yeah kind of going along with that especially in the aeneid you don't need the battle that's something that's a deeply frustrating part um i took a class in college where we translated quite a bit of the aeneid the first book first book and a half or so and the second book of the aeneid is a retelling of the Trojan War. So you're reading it now from Aeneas's perspective rather than from the Greek perspective in the Iliad. And so many people get very frustrated that Virgil decides to retell the story again because we all are familiar with the story and we all know the battle. and We don't need a thousand lines of poetry to re-explain a battle we've already read about, but we really do. And not only does that draw the young men in and give them, you know, again, endless more opportunity to imagine these battles and these glorious kind of scenes, but also now you're seeing it from an entirely new perspective. Aeneas doesn't get the spotlight really in the Iliad. In the Iliad, we learn about Hector and his motivations, and we learn about Achilles and his motivations, and Menelaus and Paris and all of these characters, but we certainly do not get that clue into Aeneas and into his experiences through the war. And I would argue it's incredibly significant that while in the Iliad, we are hearing things in real time, in the Aeneid, we are hearing things in the past. And we get to listen to and experience the grief of Aeneas as he mourns the loss of his old kingdom and his old country and his own old companions by the retelling. And that really, really changes that view of the story. So you get those wonderful battle scenes that seem almost a little bit unnecessary or just kind of superfluous. But they're actually doing something really important in that they are teaching you the aftermath of war. The Aeneid is a great example of the aftermath of war. You watch him grieve. You're not going to get that in the Odyssey in the same way because in the Odyssey, you're having, you're following a victorious warrior. This is not a victorious warrior. This is someone who fleed his country while his city burned to the ground. And that colors everything that he does. And so you see so much of what it is like for an adult to grieve, which is again, something that modern society doesn't do a good job of teaching men what the appropriate way to grieve is in public or in private. And I think this does a great job of illustrating the appropriateness of being someone who grieves and also how to grieve. And I think that that is a huge part of this novel and really changes the way that you look at the war to read this following the Iliad and to see it from the perspective of the person who lost. And you bring up a really good point in that where Achilles was born a warrior, you know, this is who he is. It doesn't seem like Achilles has to learn to be a warrior, to learn to be brave. Although we could, if we had three more hours to talk about this, you know, we could have an entire episode just on the Iliad and the Aeneid, certainly. But in both of these, there is this element of having to learn to be a man. That being a man doesn't necessarily come naturally 
that all of the things that make a man a man have to be learned. They're not just innate that all of a sudden they just bloom and boom, you're a man. It's a process of learning and growing and becoming that which you are to be. Absolutely. And it goes back to those three questions where you you can live your whole life only going with the questions, what do I want and what do other people want from me? That's how a lot of people live their lives. But to truly be a man and to be someone who fulfills all of these ideals and kind of represents this idea of manhood that is so commendable, you have to be wrestling with the question, what is the right thing to do all of the time? Achilles doesn't really do that very much. He really doesn't. Right. You could maybe argue that he does once or twice, but that is not a normal and prominent part of his life. Whereas with Aeneas, throughout the Aeneid, you're seeing that wrestling. I mean, people love to hate Aeneas for the section of the Aeneid when he's staying with Queen Dido and she's deeply in love with him and wants to share her kingdom with him and his wrestlings with the desires of his heart and with what his duty and his vocation is. And that is a hugely important part of this where he, he knows what he wants and he knows what other people want of him. But throughout that whole section, he really is subconsciously and consciously wrestling with, but what is the right thing for me to do? And watching him make a very hard choice to do the right thing is, is really fundamental. And I think we overlook those moments, those pivotal moments, especially in the Aeneid, where he chooses discomfort and he chooses uncertainty because he has his vocation. And that is really the other thing I would want to really touch on with the Aeneid specifically is that the whole point of the Aeneid is that Aeneas has received a promise from the gods that he will have a promised country that is Rome, this whole citizenship that he will start a country that will go on for years and years and be the greatest empire. And he just has to trust it and he has to go there. And he doesn't really have any evidence that that's what's going to happen, but he has to trust it and have faith and the belief that that will come to pass. And that is the driving thing throughout this novel is, does he believe that he will receive Rome and that Rome will be something that will be given to him and that will become this great and glorious new empire? And that obviously has so many scriptural references and it's dealing with these questions of, you know, Abraham and his promise of a great nation and the promised land. And you you have these wonderful struggles of, I've been promised something and I'm literally a fugitive of war running around escaping other people and dealing with <laughs> irate gods and goddesses who don't want me to make it there. Trusting that since I was promised this, I will get to have it. And therefore I need to go and get it and allow that to be given to me. I can't just choose the easy way out because I'm afraid that the promise won't come to pass. I have to continue going and have faith in that and act honorably and trust in my vocation and the calling that has been given to me, even when it is the hardest thing to do. And that, I mean, really is one of the most brilliant things in ever. I love that aspect of the Aeneid. It's just this constant language of a promise and his his struggles with trusting that promise and yet the beauty of living with a promise of a future that is beautiful throughout the hardships of current life. Believe it or not, you have set up a fantastic transition between the Aeneid and the next book on your list, St. Augustine's Confessions. St. Augustine's Confessions, I mean, what a piece of work. It is the only nonfiction piece of work on this 
list. And I just, I felt I could not write this list without that book. That book is pivotal. And I think the earlier you can get your young men to read it, the better it is. And the thing that I come up with constantly in that is that it, I mean, it truly is him confessing his sins and encouraging and reveling, honestly, in the beauty of the promise of redemption and his forgiveness. And it's wonderful. But this book is so crucial for young men to read. And I think this actually touches upon something that, again, I think we could talk about for like four hours. But we tend to, as a modern culture, assume that young men aren't having that many great sins in their lives. Um, you know, when you read Augustine's Confessions, he's living in a cult and sleeping with a different woman all the time and all of these different things where you're like, well, my sons aren't doing that. But at the same time, you as a, as a young person in the 21st century have access at the click of a button to so many things that you had better believe that every one of your sons is wrestling with guilt and with that kind of fear of confession and absolution. This is a huge thing on every young man's heart and on their conscience. And I think we do a disservice to act like, oh, you know, they're, they're tempted about little things, but I'm sure it's not anything as grave as St. Augustine. And it's not, we, we, we would do better to assume that everyone struggles with things of the level of St. Augustine, because of course we all do. And I think that's why Confessions is so important. If you read it when you're younger, it gives you a very, very different perspective. And I think it gives you much more hope for wrestling with the adult temptations that attack you when you're leaving childhood. When you're, when you're a child, you know you do things wrong, but you don't have this lasting guilt. You know, you're, you dissipate your parents and you get out of bed when you're supposed to stay in bed and they yell at you and you forget it 20 minutes later and you do the same thing. Whereas the moment that you start asking this, what is the right thing to do? You have the ability to really, really struggle with guilt. Um, and that actually will come up again in another book coming down later in the list. But reading Augustine's Confessions reminds you that you, you are still forgiven and that there are people praying for you and that, that you have absolution. Um, I read this, I must have read it freshman or sophomore year of high school. And I, I don't know if I could list a single book that has been more helpful for me to encourage and support my friends in college as they were wrestling with really, really big temptations and really, really big guilts that they handled. This book doesn't excuse or kind of belittle those temptations and those wrongs, which is another thing that we really can't do when we're talking to people with a guilty conscience is we can't go, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. You know it's wrong, so just don't do it again. Augustine really makes it clear how bad this was for him and that his lifestyle really was so incredibly bad and terrible for him. But he also pairs it with the beauty and thankfulness of his complete absolution from it. So that's really what I think is important to this is it gives your young men the opportunity as they are going to get confronted with horrible temptations and a lot of guilt this gives them a consistent reminder in their heads that a very re of a very real circumstance where a young man makes poor decisions and gives in to a lot of those temptations and is forgiven. I think that's one of the most encouraging things that we can give to young men as ammunition is Augustine's account of his own shortcomings and his own forgiveness so that as they encounter their own they do not feel defeated and fall more and more into temptation and guilt, but that they can remember their own absolution and rejoice in it and rely heavily on the people around them who are praying for them and who are there to help pull them out of that rather than drag them farther down. 
Now, our listeners might be surprised to see the next book on your list, because typically we might not think of this book as a book that boys would enjoy. So the next book is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and I knew I wanted an Austen on the boys list, but I also couldn't think of a single one better than Pride and Prejudice itself. This novel is just brilliant to give to young men, especially once they start reaching a romantic age. It, I mean, there is no book that is better at illustrating the three-dimensionality and complexity of men and women and their relationships with each other and their relationships with fellow members of the same sex. When you read Pride and Prejudice as a young man, you are not only being introduced to an array of men that you either should want to be like or should not want to be like, and it's very, very clear why one is, is, I guess it's not clear why you should want to be like one and want to be like another. It's just very, very clear which ones you should want to be like and which ones you should not. You are also introduced to a whole variety of women. And I think this is really important because this book does a great job of illustrating for you what some of the common temptations of young men are, what some of the common temptations of young women are, and how those play into each other and interact with them. So you're constantly in this book seeing that young women are prone to gossip or to be prideful. And then you also have these characters who are completely socially unaware of their surroundings and of their situations. And you really just get a great picture of what it, what kind of young women would actually make for a good marriage, not just based on what they look like or based on anything frivolous, but what kind of qualities really should I be looking for in a young woman? And, and also in a very masterful way, what kind of qualities are quality women looking for in me? And that is, I mean, a big deal. I have recommended this book multiple times to young men who are uh, not sure what to do as far as the relationship scenario in their lives is going. They aren't quite sure who the right girl is to date and who to marry. And especially with Christian young men, there is this assumption and understanding sometimes that if you're a nice young man who is a Christian, that's 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 all that a woman is looking for, is a nice Christian man, and that all you should look for is a nice Christian woman. And I think this this book, and certainly the next book, do a great job of discussing that concept of no, there are other aspects of picking a spouse that are really important. Obviously, nothing is as important as being on the same page religiously, but you can be on the same page religiously with a lot of people that you don't necessarily, that you would not be wise to marry, simply because you do not go well together. And I think Pride and Prejudice does a really great job of exploring that and kind of encouraging men to think about that and to realize that they can be like Mr. Darcy and that in that Mr. Darcy is not just going to pick any wife. He is looking for a wife who actually is his equal and who has a good education, you know, and who can actually give him feedback and have, be a back and forth. He doesn't just want a wife for the sake of a wife. He is looking for a wife who will actually better him and who will actually encourage him to be better. And you will note as you read the novel that he's not doing that consciously, but through his relationship in this novel, he learns just why that is so important and chooses to take the harder path of pursuing that relationship rather than pursuing a relationship with the random lady he could ask and get married to in a week or two because she's easy. And I think that's a really important lesson to learn is that there is 
worth and value in searching for the right person who is well-matched to you and well-suited to you and who balances out your shortcomings and who you can step up to the plate and help out when they have shortcomings rather than simply finding the person who meets the bare minimum qualifications for a spouse. So I think Austin, I mean, really is unsurpassable when it comes to teaching young men and young women how to act and how to handle themselves and what to look for when it comes to relationships, which just simply is a huge part of being a young man and a man in general. So take us then to the next book on your list, The Sorrows of Young Werther. Yes, this and the last one are are definitely the least well-known of these books. This one's probably more well-known than the last one just because it's older. So this one is by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, and he wrote this novel. This is one of his first novels. He, he is well-known for this in literary circles, but I don't know that I know many people outside of literary circles who've read this book. Although I did just have actually a conversation this weekend with a young man who said that this book was very formative to him um, when he read it growing up. So that I thought was very fascinating. And as we had a conversation about why, it was certainly clear to me that it was for a lot of the reasons I picked it for this list. The Sorrows of Young Werther does a great job of teaching you not, not entirely what not to do, but, also, but, but mostly that. The Sorrows of Young Werther is a story about, it's actually written in a, um, from the perspective of Werther's diary. So you have a, a young man, he's like college age, uh, who is romanticizing his life. You know, he absolutely loves like nature. It's perfect. You, you get a lot of these scenes where he goes and sits out in fields and just like is in awe of how beautiful the little shepherd boy is who's wandering around after his sheep. He just really romanticizes the world around him and he falls in love. He falls in love in this book very, very quickly and he's very idealistic about it. He, he really puts nature on a pedestal. He puts this romantic relationship on a pedestal and he puts his own abilities on a pedestal. He really believes that he, if he wants this this relationship he can get it and that if he you know what he wants he can get because he has this full confidence in himself and this book is so important to me to have on this list for that reason because as I kind of touched on with Pride and Prejudice there is that temptation to say I'm a nice Christian boy so no one has a right to say no to me I meet the bare qualifications, so I should get whatever relationship I want. I should get whatever accolade I'm looking for because I beat the, I, I meet those bare qualifications and I can say, I have these qualities. How dare you think that you have a right to say no to me? And it's, I mean, it's, it's a shocking novel to read as you get towards the end simply because he refuses to let go of that. And this novel illustrates for you just how drastically, even to the point of death, clinging to that idea negatively affects you, your ability to serve others, and is just spiraling into selfishness. He's so selfish throughout the book, and he gets more and more selfish um, as he isolates himself and, you know, is trying to serve only himself, not the people around him. And that has horribly negative effects on him. He's, but he's still like a romantic youth. He's great at writing poetry and he, you know, waxes poetic about everything that he sees. But this novel does a great job of showcasing how idealizing those things and committing a, a, like idolatry by putting marriage or a romantic relationship on a pedestal or nature and thinking that everything in nature is good or putting your own abilities up on a pedestal is not going to go well for you. And I think that this book does a great job of nipping that in the bud. 
you're not going to read Werther and then finish Werther and go, you know, Werther is the kind of person you want to be. There was actually a movement after Goethe wrote this book and published this book. Um, so Werther dies in the end of the novel, which is actually just a I'm going to spoil that simply because you as parents should know that going in. And there were a lot of people who died in the same way because they read this novel the wrong way. They read this novel thinking that they were supposed to emulate Werther when the entire point, obviously, from the beginning to the end is that you should not be Werther and that Werther makes all of the wrong decisions. So that's something I think that's very interesting. He makes all of the wrong decisions even up to and including his own death. And this book should be a lesson to young men that focusing on yourself is ultimately going to result in death. And and of course, from a scriptural um, standpoint, it's going to result in eternal death and that you, you do not want to be self-centered. And you don't want to, and I mean, I think the big thing with this is that being self-centered doesn't always mean being an annoying, um, narcissistic human being. There are ways to be very, very selfish that fly under other people's radars. And this does a great job of illustrating why you shouldn't do that and what some of those under the radar selfish things are. So perhaps the least familiar book on your list to our listeners is the last book on your list. Tell us about The Kite Runner. Yes. So The Kite Runner is a modern novel. I think it was written in like 2003 or 2005. So it is very, very modern. Um, and it, it is the book that I disclaim in this list, simply because it does have very, very heavy content. The premise of The Kite Runner, it's set in Afghanistan throughout kind of the turmoil of the fighting natural peoples of Afghanistan. So they have, I don't know if tribes is the right word. I think that's the word that's used in the novel. But there is, at the time period, two different tribes, native peoples to Afghanistan. And uh, one of them is always in subservience to the other. And that's a part of the novel. But then there's also the, the rising turmoil of Afghanistan that we are all familiar with today. And so it has all of that conflict. But the book centers around the relationships of men with each other. And this book is the other book on this list that actually starts out and deals a lot with young boys. So the characters are like nine, eight, nine, eleven for the beginning of this book. But um, I put this at the end of the list because I think it's one of the last books you probably should read on this list, simply because there is a scene where a young boy is raped by other little boys. And so you do want to be careful and cautious that you know that that's what your uh, son is going to read before you give him this book. However, Having such a heavy thing start, because that pretty much starts the book off, having such a heavy thing decide and drive the plot of the novel is actually so well done in this, because you then follow along with the aftermath of that and the result of that and how guilt and how your own personal shortcomings reflect in your relationships with the people around you and especially the people closest to you. Um, so you are following the lead character and his father, his best friend, his best friend's father, um, you know, the class bully, all of these men in this story as they all deal with the consequences of their own actions of, of or of their own inactions. And so you read this book and you are constantly carrying a very, very heavy subject throughout the book. And that the weight of that is very, very heavy throughout it. But you can tell that you're building up to an opportunity for forgiveness. You're building up for the opportunity of true friendship and 
This book also does a great job of illustrating what it means to not forgive yourself and how if you make a mistake and you refuse to give yourself forgiveness or accept the, the forgiveness of anyone else, that's being selfish. And it, it does a great job of illustrating how negatively your, your refusal to forgive yourself affects the people around you. And I think it does a great job of showing you how just because your sins have consequences doesn't mean those consequences are at the end of the day bad. There can be good that comes arises from bad. Yeah, so this this novel, it's certainly not a super uplifting one. This is the only novel I've ever read where I cried for like 10 minutes when I finished it. Out of joy, I was very happy with the way it ended, but I've never actually reacted that way to a book before when reading it. But it, I mean, it really takes you on this journey of guilt and search for identity and reckoning with forgiveness that is so crucial and so well done. This novel really upholds the idea of forgiveness while kind of illustrating how your insistence on being mighty or valiant can sometimes take away from your ability to receive forgiveness or give forgiveness. And then the idea of being loyal, being more important than being, again, valiant or glorious. And so it really puts on contrast some of those traits that we look up to, coming back to the Iliad and the Aeneid, of being a good warrior and being brave and being mighty. And it contrasts that with the importance of being forgiving and of being loyal and of being kind. And I think it does that in a masterful way and in a way that will really fundamentally change the person who reads it to remember that those, those traits that are good traits, valor and might and great battle prowess, are only good in so much as who they serve and what their purpose is. And so you are not a great warrior if you aren't fighting to protect someone and you're not laudable if you never forgive anyone and if you're loyal to none, then you're just a terror. And I think that that does great things. This this novel really does that in an incredible way. It's the only non-Western book, I guess, on this list, technically speaking. And it really does take you out of the perspective we usually hear and the narrative that we usually focus on as we're reading and growing up. And it does a great job of illustrating for you as a reader, what the consequences of your actions are and what the great beauty of forgiveness is. And I guess my, my final kind of point on that, at least initially, is that I think your children can probably handle it sooner than you think they can. I read this, oh, I was 16 or 17, and I read it for a class. And I don't know if my parents would have chosen to have me read this book at that point, but my teacher had it assigned. And it was not an easy book to read, but I certainly, I mean, I go back to it all of the time. I think this book is really important. And I think wrestling with those things you wanna pretend don't exist while you're pretending that those really, really horrible consequences don't exist is a good time to do it. If you wanna pretend that the world is not e evil and that these things don't happen, this is probably a good time to read this book because it reminds you that pretending something doesn't happen or is, is actually the opposite of helpful. And that is really what I would encourage is definitely read it as a parent before you assign it to your children or give it to your kids so that if they come to you and want to talk about it, you know what they're talking about. But don't be so afraid of the mature content in this novel that you, that you let your children not learn the lessons from the book. Well, thank you, Ellie. This has been fantastic. You've given us a lot to ponder. You've given us some great books to put on our reading list. And for a lot of us listeners, the days are getting colder 
And that's always a good time to stock up on books to read as, as we want to stay inside more often. Ellie will be back with us down the road uh, for another set of lists. And I, I will have the audacity to speak for our listeners. And I will say <laughs> that we are looking forward to uh, another round of, of books that folks should read. Ellie, thank you so much for your time in bringing us through this list, putting together this list and bringing us through this this list of 10 books boys should read before they're 21. I look forward to having you back on again in the near future. Absolutely. I am certainly looking forward to those future lists. And I would encourage any listeners, of course, if they have questions or concerns or just start reading these novels and want to have someone to discuss them with, to feel free to reach out. And I will gladly, again, talk to you more about why I think these books are important or help you work through them if it's your first time going through them. But I, I certainly have loved putting this list together and have enjoyed beginning on our future lists and look forward to discussing those with you guys very soon. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.